Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. And I'm Steve. And uh, what are we talking about today, Steve? So today we're going to talk about the Sega Master System, Sega's 8-bit console. Excellent. Um, So we're going to start off with a bit of history here. Uh, Sega first arrived on the home console scene with the release of the SG-1000 in 1983. This coincided with the release of the SC-3000, a Sega home computing solution that was nearly identical to the 1000, uh, but just included a built-in keyboard. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, just a general computing, uh, similar to the MSX in design. Both these systems were kind of released in a market with stiff competition. 83 is kind of, if we remember kind of back to the history, there's a lot of consoles at this time. It's kind of right before the Great Collapse. so the MSX computer was released around the same time as Sega's uh, SC3000. It was significantly cheaper and much more capable. Uh, as for the SG1000, Sega's 8-bit console, uh, Sega kind of released that on the same day as this company called Nintendo released something known as the Nintendo Family Computer, um, which, is kind of, <laughs> which is kind of a huge risk. So head-to-head with the Famicom, the SG-1000 had clunkier controls on a library that was a little more than just first-party Sega software, and it pretty much guaranteed that the SG-1000 would not sell nearly as well as the Famicom. Ash, yeah, uh, off to a rough start. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to note that no one was certain of Nintendo's success at the time. Uh, you know, we have hindsight to look back at that. So uh, yeah. as a direct competitor to the Famicom, the SG-1000 had a faster processor, uh, a bit less RAM, and about the same or better graphics than the NES. It was, for all intents and purposes, nearly identical to the Sega System 1 arcade board, uh, the board used for Choplifter, Flicky, uh, Pitfall 2, etc., uh, an iconic board that was very successful. That's right. Um, and so similarly, the, the SG-1000 inherits uh, the Sega System 1's Texas Instruments SN76489 sound chip. Though on the Sega System 1s, it's called the SN76496, you know, all these numbers for you guys out there at home. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what the difference is between. Um, I've looked at different websites like Sega Retro and whatnot, and when you click the links for SN76496, it brings you to something about the SN76489. I'm assuming that they're just maybe, you know, maybe one's a first issue, one's a second issue, but there doesn't seem to be anything uh, different between the two. Um, so if any of you guys out there know the reason why, you know, or what the difference is between them, please let me know. I'm very curious about that. And there's nothing on any of the wikis or anything that I've looked at that really distinctly describes what the difference huh. is. So please let me know. Um, so just to keep things easy, I'm just going to call it the SN76489 or just call it the Sega Master System PSG or something a little bit easier uh, from here on out. Yeah, PSG audio works. Um, yeah, that works well. Yeah. So uh, spec-wise, the SG1000's SN76489 provided three channels of square waves and a noise channel. And well, the square waves are stuck as square waves. Uh, the noise channel has various modes that we'll talk about a bit more in detail coming up. Uh, here's an example from Doki Doki Penguin Land for the SG-1000. So, yeah, that's like a pretty simple uh, bit of music there. There's really nothing complicated in the sound going on. Uh, it, it does have like a little bit of echo in there, but yeah, it's very simple overall. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because there's no noise channel uh, used there either. So, I mean, you know, just kind of early. And it's kind of a nice tune, kind of, I'd say, janky <laughs> a little bit in terms of how <laughs> it, it's actually formed. Like, I can't figure out the meter in some points, but I thought it was a pretty cool tune. So, comparing the Famicom sound output directly to the SG-1000s, which we talked about in a former uh, podcast, provides two pulse waves with variable duty cycles, one triangle wave, a noise channel, and a sample channel. The SN76489 seems pretty inferior by comparison, no? Right, because basically what it comes down to is the NES has more different kinds of sounds it can make, um, so there's just less you can do with the Master System. Um, but in places where they're similar, uh, you'll see some of the same sound design tricks kind of pop up. We have an example here from Master of Darkness, where you hear the uh, standard two-channel echo. the same thing we did for DuckTales in the NES episode where we isolate the lead channel so you can hear the uh, like echo part and how it's behind in time. We also mentioned in the NES episode how you can make uh, plucky sounds by switching the duty cycles, like you attack with one then sustain on another. Uh, of course, that's not an option with the Sega Master System audio, um, but another way it can be done on the NES and can be done here as well is just by attacking with a pitch bend. Uh, so a great example of that comes from Tintin in Tibet. Uh, let's give that a listen. So you can hear, like especially in some of those higher pitched notes, that high pitched uh, like little attack that those notes start with uh, gives it a good sound. No, yeah, I definitely hear the pluckiness you're talking about, and it adds kind of like because you know the the PSG is really smooth. It kind of adds a little bit of like a crunch or a break to it. So that's really it's kind of uh, well appreciated, I think. I should probably just quickly clarify too that that last example is actually from the Sega Game Gear, although that still works as a demonstration here because uh, the Game Gear had identical audio to the Master System. Uh, it just allowed for stereo sound, um, but that's not really an important distinction. And uh, anyway, so to get back on track, the point is that the Master System and uh, Game Gear PSG audio has just a lower quality sound to it than the NES. You know, it feels more like early 80s. Surely Sega had a plan to level the audio playing field, right? 
Well, you know, according to our history notes here, so Sega attempted to respond to the criticisms regarding the SG-1000, and the console was eventually, quote-unquote, upgraded to the uh, SG-1002 in 1984, a console that featured significant upgrades such as, uh, you know, changes to the shape of the console, position of the ports and the controllers, uh Yeah, so nothing really, basically. There were no hardware upgrades. Uh, They did move the keyboard port to the front of the console for an easier setup, though, so. Oh, perfect, yes. You know, so I can buy my SK-1100 keyboard and hook it directly to the front of my ST-1002 to make it just (laughs) as good as a computer that came out in 1983, the ST-3000. That's basically what that port was. I actually have an SK-1100 for my (laughs) ST-1002. Yeah, I I don't know why I bought it, but it just kind of, you know, for nostalgia purposes. Um, But even then, when I try to run most of the ST-3000 programs, I can't run them. So this must have been a pain point for other people. Um, Sega's telling you that you can buy these two different parts, connect them together, and they're trying to make it easier for you, but you still can't run some of the programs you want to run on SC3. Ouch, woof. Um, Yeah, and so combining all of that, the MSX is still cheaper than buying those two parts. Oh, no. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. (laughs) Is is this, like, foreshadowing the problems with Sega? Definitely, yes. So... (laughs) Anyway, so uh, keep in mind, at this point, Nintendo was dominating the console sales by nearly a 9-to-1 margin, uh, though Sega managed to weather the storm mostly by maintaining the SG-1000s as a system for their first-party arcade games. Yeah, and it's important to notice that nearly all of their comp- competitors at this time flopped. This is kind of, uh, you know, people, say, uh, who've written about this era in 83, 84, kind of like the death of a lot of other consoles. Um, Sega easily defeated Atari's 5200 console, in sales, and along with Nintendo, helped drive away many competitors out of the console business by le- by late 1984. So, yeah, Sega didn't sell very well, but, I mean, I think it's not that this console wasn't successful. Um, it kind of laid the groundwork for future consoles. So, uh, maintaining uh, this small foothold and momentum, Sega decided to revise the SG-1002 console once again uh, in 1985. And this time, they listened. They significantly upgraded the hardware. All right. About time. Uh, what did they upgrade? So they didn't upgrade the sound. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, at least not immediately. Sega's third generation console, the SG-1000, the Sega Mark III, included a major graphics upgrade. The SG-1000 was capable of 16 colors on the screen at a time. The Mark III was capable of 32. That's actually more than the Famicom. I think the Famicom is, what, 26, 24? It's something along those lines. Uh, And it also draws from a color palette of 64 colors. So it could be more vibrant from that uh, that perspective. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And it also featured great launch titles like Hang On and uh, Teddy Boy Blues. So, yeah, I've never heard of Teddy Boy Blues, so uh, I might be revealing myself to uh, the Sega fans listening to this episode that <laughs> this is out of my, uh, you know, territory, so. Well, you know Hang On, at least, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Teddy, Teddy Boy Blues, or I think it was just called Teddy Boy when it's released here, was a, a, an arcade game that was apparently pretty popular. I think it used the System 1 border System 2. I'd have to look that up. So I guess, you know, with all of this, Sega's clearly going to win the console wars, right? We have a new console. We have uh, new graphics. We have uh, prettier graphics. Uh, so what ends up happening? 
I mean, if, uh, you know, people valued graphics over the library of games, you know, people would have gone to the master system a bit more probably, but, um, they had a game licensing issue due to strict rules that Nintendo had with many of their vendors. Uh, so that made things hard for them. Um, but, you know, going back to the audio, uh, Sega did decide to try and enhance the Mark III sound capabilities to sound a bit more like their arcade boards, uh, you know, maybe hoping that uh, if their system felt more arcadey, that would give them somewhat of an edge. Yes, and it's kind of something we'll see in, in future episodes or anything of that Sega kind of has always done, which is kind of use their uh, arcade IPs as a strength. Yes, so already by this time, uh, when the Master System was out, Sega was already using the Sega System 16 board, which featured the iconic YM2151 FM chip. So think of Altered Beast, Fantasy Zone, a lot of those older arcade machines. You know the sound of this chip. You've heard it before. It's very likely you have if you played a Sega uh, arcade game. It's a 16-bit system, and again, this is kind of the board that the Sega Genesis is modeled after. Um, They're very similar in terms of tech specs. So, you know, at this time, basically, Sega already had in the arcade what would become the successor to the Master System. So, to kind of bring the Master System up to speed with what was happening, uh, in 1987, Sega released a special FM sound unit attachment that provided fixed two-operator FM synthesis through the the Yamaha YM2413 thus sounding much more like the arcade than the NES. Here's an example from the YM2413 version of Fantasy Zone 2. Yeah, I, f- I feel like if I heard that coming out of my TV at the time, you know, you listen to it now and it's just like, oh, it still sounds fairly simple, but um, it would definitely stand out in sound quality. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I do have the FM sound unit uh, I have uh, for my Mark III. And I can tell you that it, you know, it sounds really, really crisp and it sounds really great uh, on an older TV. Like it, it, it's a really impressive sound. And if I had had that, again, to compare it to my NES, I would have been really excited about it, I think. And uh, so we have uh, another comparison here. Let's take a listen to the main theme to Double Dragon. We have examples from the NES, the uh, Master System PSG audio, and the Master System FM audio. So that was the uh, NES version, of course. Here's the Sega Master System PSG version. And here's the uh, Sega Master System YM2413, uh, in other words, the uh, FM version.
Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the FM uh, version there sounds pretty cool. It's interesting because, like, I'd actually argue uh, listening to the uh, the FM Sega Master System version versus the arcade version that the Master System version actually sounds clearer and more coherent. So why don't we take a listen to that exact theme from the arcade, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I I don't know which version I like more. Uh, the arcade version is like, has more going on, like it's dirtier. Like I feel like yeah. each individual sound is maybe a little more complex, but it's definitely uglier sounding at the same time. Yeah, I imagine, it's funny because I would ima- I'd like to hear what it actually sounds like coming from the actual chip in an arcade. Maybe it sounds a little less ugly, but that like drum or whatever is just really like, crackly yeah oh yeah i mean if i was working on the game i would be like happier with the cleaner version at the time for sure i'd be oh, like, yeah. Oh, like oh yeah this is nicer sounding but uh and just because i like the weird synthesis stuff like i kind of like how the arcade version is like kind of ugly sounding so no no i yeah i can appreciate yeah. that absolutely <laughs> so even that being said and the mere fact that we're talking about you know a sega home console beating an arcade console in terms of sound quality th- this means that sega won the console war right <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sega's sales were sluggish in Japan, even with the extra sound expansion chip, and they hadn't been doing well globally. Just as Nintendo had rebranded the Famicom for other countries uh, as the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, so did Sega. They rebranded the Mark III as the Sega Base System slash Power Base slash Master System, uh, depending on your region, in uh, 1986. Yes, and that's because a Sega had originally had offered a Sega base system, which was just like a controller and the actual system. They called that the Sega base system. And then there was the Sega master system, which was the Sega system uh, or power base, which is the actual what they, the name that they call the actual console itself. The gun, games, etc., etc., etc. The Master System package became much more popular, and thus it became known as the Master System. Now, I saw this. I think it was on Sonic Re- Sega Retro, or I saw it somewhere. But I'd really like to hear if anyone has also had heard this rumor as well. There is a rumor that Sega board executives who are trying to name this for American audiences literally threw darts at a board with different names on it. And oh my I, God. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but I saw this in two different places. It's a rumor, but you know, if anyone can confirm that or you know knows where that rumor comes from, uh, please let us know. I, I'm very curious about that. <laughs> I really hope that's true. That's amazing. <laughs> I really hope so yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, getting back on topic, uh, the U.S. and international versions uh, released a, a little bit ahead of the FM sound unit did not contain the FM sound unit at all. Right, like it was an add-on, so uh, that came out after. So there's a large port in each of the consoles to attach these accessories, like similar to the mysterious port on the bottom of the NES. You know, there's that little plastic, like rectangular tab you can pull off, uh, which you know never got used on the NES for anything. But anyways, um, so you know the Master System had a port like that as well. And uh, even after the launch of the FM sound unit in Japan. It wasn't even made uh, available internationally. You know, it wasn't readily available. That kind of sounds like a mistake. And, well, you know, and according to our notes, you know, maybe not in retrospect, because the sales in the U.S. were so sluggish that sol- uh, Sega sold distribution rights to Tonka for the console by 1988. 
So, and uh, we get this information from Sega Retro. Uh, you know, they point out this was a very bad decision. Tonka had never sold games before and did not really know uh, how to market the console. So uh, things got so bad by 1990 that Sega rescinded the rights to from Tonka and tried to save the console, um, but it was a bit late. Yeah, it's, it's interesting just uh, uh, kind of as an aside, as a collector of Sega Master System products, um, you know, and I'm kind of tipping my hand here because I've searched for these all the time. This kind of marks the uh, beginning of Sega uh, console or Sega Master System games having a blue label, the mysterious Master System blue label. Huh. Um, and these blue label games are very rare because they were produced by Sega and not by Tonka. They're like literally 10 times the price of the regular Sega Master System oh, games. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I found, and they're very hard to find. I mean, there's uh, there was a, a blue label Outrun, Sega Outrun, uh, which was like one that was produced after 19, uh, 1990 by Sega on eBay. There's one copy of it that was has been on there in probably the last two years, and I bought it. So wow. good luck, good luck. <laughs> right. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to fix the cover art of the uh, Master System games at that point, though, did they? No, no, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I'm not like well versed on the like outside the research we did for this episode i wasn't well versed on the master system and like the one thing i knew about it uh aside from the audio beforehand was just how terrible the uh cover art was on all their yeah it's interesting we could probably do a whole episode on that too even you know outside the audio but yeah their their covers uh maintain that that white background with kind of like a uh you know a a picture in the middle of it that's kind of like in a box that kind of like white kind of grid background uh, which is even like you know the so a lot of the japanese games had that Mark III boxes are really interesting, though. They're gold, and they have, like, uh, nice pictures on them. And they're smaller. Very hard to find, too. I collect those, but, I mean, any of those boxes, you know, if people can't find (laughs) Sonic and Knuckles boxes in good shape right now, it's going to be very hard to find uh, not very mass-produced Mark III games from 1986 in a box. So, um, (laughs) all right, that was a huge aside. But (laughs) So, you know, we're kind of ragging on Sega a little bit here for how this was handled. And, you know, no one really, mm-hmm. again, we kind of said that no one really knew that Nintendo was going to take off in the direction it did. And, you know, Nintendo eventually buried, and Nintendo buries the competition and Sega manages to survive uh, despite that. And so, you know, despite all these missteps, you know, what did, what did Sega do that was right with the Master System? Well, the Master System, oddly enough, sold very well in Europe. Um, Nintendo didn't focus much of their attention out there, and Sega managed to dominate the market by 1988. Sega picked up third-party licenses from European developers, something they were unable to do in both uh, Japan and U.S., as Nintendo had licensing agreements with all of their products that prevented them from, from companies from working with Sega or any other thing. That's how Nintendo kind of outsold uh, their competitors. The SMS was so successful in Europe, in fact, that uh, it was supported by Sega all the way through 1996. Wow. That reminds me of how, like, the uh, Sega Genesis was supported for a long time afterwards uh, in, like, Brazil, right? Yes, actually, and I was going to mention a little bit about that. Yeah, Brazil, ha- uh, Sega sold the rights in Brazil to a company called Tectoy, um, and they were, you know, they managed, manufactured all of Sega's games out in Brazil. And, I mean, the Master System, I think, was going all the way up until 2001 there. There's Whoa. versions of Street Fighter 2 for it that look amazing. If you like, We should attach a link to that. I, sure. I think I sent a link to, uh, to, uh, that to you a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. It, it looks ridiculously good. Um, and it just shows you how good the Master System's processor and abilities were and kind of, uh, you know, untapped. Um, but yeah, it, it was very popular in Brazil. Um, it was very iconic there, uh, the tech toy. or the, They had a Master System 3, in fact, out there. Huh. 
Um, so yeah. <laughs> but but no matter what, when it comes down to it, though, the Master System still didn't really have good audio. Yeah, and that's one thing. Yeah, that's one thing that always held it back, I, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, compared to its competitors. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like sort of when people talk about the Master System as the underdog, you know, people will point out like it has the better graphics than the NES, and it's just unfortunate it had a weaker library. Um, but as sort of like the audio nerd, it's kind of like, nope, the NES totally like uh, destroys yeah. it, though. <laughs> like it's, it's way, you know, NES is, I mean, has there much better audio. Some of the European only games that were released have amazing layered parallax scrolling, like mm-hmm. like next level, like Super Nintendo level parallax scrolling um, that only the, the, the Master System was capable of doing. But again, as we said before, I think a lot of people valued the whole package, which is the IPs, the, the games that right. the characters they know. And that sound had definitely had something to do with it. Yeah, the audio, uh, you know, the audio sounded like it came from the early 80s. Yeah, yeah so. it, I mean, we're talking, yeah, I mean, PSGs are early 80s. Yeah. Like, that, that's generous saying early <laughs> 80s, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we talked enough about the history here. We'll get more into the audio then. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the point here. of this uh, podcast, I think. Yeah, 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 I get a little carried away. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you sort of brought up the history of this because it's not something I was very familiar with. So uh, no, I, I, I yeah. find it really fascinating because of all the iterations uh, of this console and kind of the same hardware goes into a console uh, and, and revisions over those years. So we played some examples of the Master System's PSG audio earlier and mentioned that it's, you know, sound is more limited than the NES and you couldn't change duty cycles on it. Uh, but it was also limited in other ways as well. Not only is it limited by like the timbre of the, the actual sounds by being square waves, it has a more limited note range. And that is, it, you know, the Sega Master System's audio is not very capable of playing very low pitched noises, at least with, without, you know, without not without using a couple tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of put an example together using a Delic's Duffel Mask. Thanks, Delic, as always. I uh, love your program. Um, here's an example of uh, a one square channel, just kind of showing you the range uh, from all the way from the lowest possible pitch, which you'll hear is not very low, to something that will probably make a dog bark. So let's take, let's take a <laughs> Give listen. that a listen. <laughs> that's kind of awesome yeah no it's very capable of very high-pitched noises that uh i can't hear apparently so right (laughs) i i think i heard it out to the end there so maybe i I guess how would i know if i didn't yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so i mean with that based on that limitation like almost everything that's on the sega master system has to be written in a high pitch it's a limitation um, and so high pitch and the same timbre. For example, we all kind of know Outrun. We probably played in the arcade and we're familiar with the music. It's pretty iconic. So I've collected uh, the Master System version of a song from Outrun here. So let's take a listen. So as you can hear, the bass line is not particularly low-pitched, 
there's more emphasis on the mid-range of sounds, and the melody has to live in higher octave ranges as a result to sort of make that distinction. Yeah. Uh, and another great example of the high timbre sound provided by the uh, PSG audio is from Alex Kidd, The Lost Stars. System audio always sounds like ticky and tingy. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. Yeah, so I mean, it, you can kind of hear with the Sega Master System, you're always going to have higher pitch, kind of light attack on the the squares. It's kind of nice, but it's also kind of, I guess, hollow. Um, and I guess that's because yeah. you have all 50% squares. Um, you also kind of notice the noise channel kind of sounds poppy. Um, kind of reminds me of. Uh, uh, YMO track uh, on their first album, uh, Theme from the Circus or uh, Computer Games or whatever. I think it's the very first track on their 78 album, self-titled. Um, so yeah, it kind of has that like poppy like firecracker almost sound to it. Oh yeah, there's actually a technical reason for that we'll bring up in just a moment. Uh, yeah, the noise has some weird behaviors. So, um, But yeah, something else to mention about the uh, square wave channels is the volume control. Um, and it's it's very similar to the NES where it has 16 volume settings again. Uh, although there actually is a little bit of a difference with them here. The NES has a linear fade out in the volume. So like volume uh, like three is half as loud as volume six uh, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but with some other chips, sometimes you get a logarithmic curve. And this is mm-hmm. something I didn't know. This is something pointed out to me by uh, Hun Retro Geek. In our SoundCloud comments, um, who, by the way, I picked his brain out the noise channel. I'll go into his explanation about that in a second. Oh, great. Um, but it's cool because he left this comment at a time where I was playing around with the Duffel Mask tracker. And so I had like ambitions to do covers of the track you wrote that we use as the opening theme for the show. Um, the idea being like whenever we do an episode about a particular console or sound chip, uh, I would do a cover of it for that sound chip uh, just to sort of like learn more about whatever we're talking about. Uh, I didn't really give myself enough time this week to finish it, though. But anyways, <laughs> your, your song has like these fade outs in them. And I was like copying the part like exactly into Duffel Mask, like using your same volume settings. Mm-hmm. And I could hear between the lowest volumes that there weren't the same jumps in volume that you hear on the NES. So it actually was kind of smooth between the quietest volumes. And mm-hmm. it was it was really bugging me because like I wanted it to sound like your track. I was expecting <laughs> it to sound like yours. And I was like, yeah. oh, you know, I, I would have to like actually play around with the volumes uh, a bit differently, like put bigger gaps in there to make it sound like more like more like your track. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, the jumps become smaller and smaller between the softer volumes. So it, it depends on what you're going for. If you wanted a smooth fade out, then you have it beneath, mm-hmm. you know, between the, the softest volumes. But uh, if you want that distinction, because it gives like a cool echo effect, maybe kind of sort of thing, like you lose that. So that's interesting too, because I found that working with some of the Genesis tracks I've been writing in Defle Mask and using the PSG, which is also part of. Uh, Genesis Audio, the exact same thing. It's actually the exact same PSG from the Master System. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting because I've tried to do single channel echo and other effects that are kind of normal for FamiTracker, and you do have to like. I mean, I'm doing single channel echo using C as my volume, and using nine as the echo, and it that that sounds like the way it should on the NES when I'm using 
like C and four or something right, like that. So right. it, it, it's an interesting thing. And I never even thought about that. I was just listening and I was kind of just adapting to that. So I didn't actually know that. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we can uh, talk more about the noise here. So the noise, yeah, the noise channel here is a bit different than the NES uh, as well, of course. Um, so you have, again, you, you do have like the two different noise modes. I mean, there's more, more than that as well. But like on the NES, we, there was the normal noise and then there was like the periodic uh, looped noise. And so you see a similar thing pop up here again with the Sega Master System, PSG audio. So with the standard noise, you could call it white noise. It's like the same noise you get on all these systems. But there's a technical thing that Hun Retro Geek pointed out to me. Uh, every time the noise pitch or mode register is written to, the noise generator is reset. And this is going to get a little technical here. He says the initial state of the generator is, <clears throat> in terms of bits, uh, the following. 1, 0, 0, 0. 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. So what he's saying is in the first few fractions of a second, the noise starts with a sort of pulse-like crackle, as he describes it. And I think that's what you're referencing before, that sort of shaky, unstable firecracker sound the noise channel has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's you get whenever it attacks, uh, before it sustains and does its, you know, random noise generation, it, it always starts with that weird little attack to it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it has this crackly cough in a way. Uh, every mm -hmm. time and it's funny too because i didn't know the technical explanation for that but when i was playing around with tracking out some noise it was like why does the noise feel more unstable and so i'm like why i felt like i trusted it less than the nes noise in a way yeah it, it, it's very different working with it and i that must be one of the reasons why it does kind of feel and exactly right unstable it, it's it, it's not as tr trustworthy is a good way to put it yeah yeah and then so it also has the periodic noise uh as I was reading on SMS Power, a uh, breakdown of the uh, sound chip, um, periodic noise is just what it's called. It doesn't technically uh, meet that definition. Um, with this channel, you can get the, the sort of pitchy sounds again, like you can on the NES, but the master system is actually better at it. So this is one thing it does a little bit better than the NES. Um, here, I'll play an example here of just like a sort of part that's playing out using the white noise channel, and then it's going to play again um, Switch over to periodic noise to give the pitchy sound. Let's give that a listen. So yeah, and you can so you have more different pitches you can sort of go through and get that sort of uh, pitchier sound uh, better than you can on the NES. So yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Oh, and Hun Retro Gamer was also pointing out that like you effectively uh, get like a pulse wave with like a one sixteenth of the wave in the on state with the noise channel. <laughs> Uh, so like it's, he's saying it's like essentially a 6.75% duty cycle. So it's like not even really noise at that point. It's a, they're basically making a square wave with the noise channel. That, that would make sense because it would be the proportion of the ones and zeros. So yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That's actually really funny. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Okay. And then there's this other weird thing you can do with the noise channel as well with, uh, four pitch settings. So the channel has a two bit period register, uh, making four possibilities, Three of these are arbitrarily chosen preset pitches, generally re referred to as low, mid, and high. And the <laughs> fourth option is where things get interesting. Uh, the frequency divider of square channel three is used for the noise channel. So you're taking the third uh, square wave channel and you're basically combining it with the noise channel to make pitches. So, And again, this is from Hun Retro Geek's explanation here. He says, uh, frequencies in these old chips are created by supplying them with an input clock rate 
which is then divided by a frequency divider set to a certain value via the period register. So the software manipulates the, the divider in the equation, and that's how different frequencies are created. So yeah, you, you, you can hijack, to put that like very, very simple dumbed down terms, uh, which is what I need to understand it. You, you, can, <laughs> you can hijack the third channel uh, to make these pitchy sounds with the noise channel. Um, so you sort of lose a channel, although, um, as he points out, you don't technically completely lose the third square channel. Like, it's not muted. Uh, sounds can still come from it, but it's, like, recommended muting it sometimes because it's gonna there's going to be weird issues. So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've uh, messing around with that kind of myself. Uh, I, there's definitely some kinds of weird issues that happen with that. Um, load, mid, and high are very distinctive sounds. Um, and there's something that probably if you played any masters of games you've heard before, they like to use them. They, they, they're very particular sounds um, and they're kind of iconic in their own right. Um, oh uh, yeah, let's give that a listen. So as you can hear, those sounds have definitely been uh, probably in a game that you've played on Sega Master System or, you know, you probably recognize it. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the Sonic game, Sonic uh, Sonic the Hedgehog or Sonic 2, they use those kind of as the background for uh, the drums there. That's a great example of it if you check that out. So, so actually really interesting too... Um, the Master System, despite not actually having a sample channel like a DPCM like the NES has, can play samples. Yeah, we have a few examples here. Let's give them a listen. Find the miracle ball. So uh, as this was explained to me, uh, this trick is very similar to how the NES does 7-bit PCM. Basically, uh, almost any chip can be used to output samples. As long as you have a voltage output, you can rapidly change. So this game sets a square channel to the highest possible frequency, which is far outside the range of human hearing, so that the regular square doesn't interfere with the sound. And then like a 4-bit volume can be rapidly set to stored values uh, stored in the ROM uh, to output 4-bit PCM. So that's how that works. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of rare in these games, but it's cool to finally you know figure out how that works. I've always wondered that. It's because like you look at the specs and it's like no, that they just definitely played a sample there, and there's nothing on here that says it can do that. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think that pretty much covers the basics of the SN76489 sound capabilities. Um, you know, also known as PSG audio. Uh, but uh, you know, what fun would that be if we only covered the basics? I mean, that's right. I mean, quite a few composers, especially in uh, Europe, came up with innovative workarounds and techniques, just like they did for the NES, which we talked about, uh, which is awesome. So when you take a look at the list of composers who wrote for the uh, Sega Master System, you'll quickly realize that there's actually an all-star cast of some of the best of the best Euro-style composers who wrote soundtracks for the Sega Master System. Uh, that's right. For instance, uh, here's a track by Alberto Gonzalez for the Sega Master System version of The Smurfs.
love that art melody there. It's so cool. Yeah, I love the sound. There's like that first melody that kicked in, which was great, and then towards the end here, like when it faded out, you're hearing that um, arpeggiated melody. Yeah, that is very cool sounding. No, it, it's really cool, and like it, it, it's like it, it's a sound chip that I think that when you hear a lot of the music for it, you, there's like, you know, what it is. I think there's a lot of bad Sega Master System music, and when you hear good Sega Master System music, you're like, wow, I can't believe that you could make those sounds from there. Um, what's really great about the PSG is like ARPs can sound so watery like that, but like a good way, kind of not like ARP fest, as some people would call some uh, Euro style songs. Mm -hmm. It's just like uh, the right kind of balance. And that's what uh, Alberto Gonzalez is amazing at. So it really emphasizes his skill. Oh, absolutely. I guess I should mention, though, that Alberto Gonzalez um, has mentioned uh, to me before that uh, he's actually not very proud of his output on the Sega Master System and Sega Game Gear. Uh, he says he didn't have a lot of time to work on those games, and he didn't discover a trick, uh, which we're about to show in an upcoming example, a trick where you could get deeper bass out of the system, deeper pitches. Um, so he just he feels like he never really utilized the sound chip uh, in the way that he wanted to. But nonetheless, I still think he made some uh, great music. No, absolutely. It's definitely, uh, I was definitely impressed with it. So, And so going back to that deeper bass sound, I think you have an example picked out here. Yeah, so a great example of this would be Matt Furness, who is an amazing composer for <laughs> and has been for many, many years. Um, he did some really interesting work to and kind of uses that lower bass we talked about, that kind of noise channel bass, uh, in this example from Alien 3. Yeah, that sounds great. And again, that's utilizing that like uh, noise channel trick where it's combining with uh, the third pulse wave channel to make that deeper bass uh, pitch. It's really a game changer when you think about the audio. It really creates something that was kind of lacking in a lot of the other soundtracks. Um, and so I can see why Alberto Gonzalez is a little disappointed that he didn't get to utilize it. Um, it really, it, it almost sounds, it's kind of like Sunsoft bassy ish yeah and almost like a sawtooth at the same time it, it's really kind of an interesting sound um and it's really meaty and strong and i think that that kind of really grounds the square waves absolutely and i actually reached out to matt furnace about that because i was curious about you know if he had any thoughts about using that extra voice mm -hmm. um he actually credited uh sean hollingworth oh yeah uh, the guy who wrote he wrote the uh, sound driver. Uh, so he, he gave all the credit to him for discovering that triangle, what he calls the triangle wave base noise. Uh, so, and yeah, yeah. He also mentioned though that uh, again, because you're using like the noise 
channel is drawing from the noise channel to make that noise that you can't have traditional normal noise happening at the same time so you'll notice like that bass line is in between drum beats it's not actually landing with any drums so that's sort of like shortcut or workaround you have to uh take into consideration yeah no and it sounds really good i think that you know it's again one of those kind of tricks that a composer uses where the listener doesn't realize that that's what's happening um and it's interesting to see that you know uh, as we look at every console there's there's lots of little tricks like that so the master system that's a that's a big thing with the c64 because the different sound channels make the same sounds in them so like uh you know if you have a baseline and a drum sound you're not using different channels like you would on the nes or whatever where like you know melody is the square wave noise is the drums it's kind of like no you're gonna have the baseline and the drums going on the same channel it's going to be separated just like it was in that example there yeah so. and i think that that's it's good to point out too that a lot of these guys were commodore 64 and specky and like older you know uh, composers from the euro scene so they're used to that limitation and i think that that's why they were able to maximize that limitation even further that's why it's so exciting and honestly like a lot of these tracks from the uh, the uh, european scene the eu scene of the sega master system i'd never heard before um and i'm really impressed with a lot of the stuff that i'd heard uh, kind of segueing into another game that matt Furness did music for uh, is kind of one of my favorite games, Lemmings. Everyone loves Lemmings, right? Oh, I love uh, Lemmings. I, I, I only I, I grew up with it on the Amiga, though. I didn't have it for Master oh, System. Oh man, yeah, I, I didn't have a Master System at all. I had so. like I was at a Mac Two CI or something like that, CX, and it had this like demo disc that had like Lemmings for Macintosh or something on it. I played the Living Daylights nice. out of that. I love Lemmings. Yeah. Oh, me yeah. too. Great. Um, so I, I wish I, you know, uh, had the version for Sega Master System because it's we get to be treated to Matt Furness's renditions of all the tunes. Um, so I have just two quick examples here that we can take a listen to. Uh, so here's an example from, I believe, Stage 8. Oh, yeah, I like that part where, like, the melody sort of dropped out and had the heavier drum beat. That was really cool. Yeah, no, he kind of puts his own spin on it, and I really appreciated that. As someone who really loves all the music from Lemmings, to hear a little bit of an extra spin was kind of nice. Um, there's another example here that I really like the drums in, um, and it's another one of those classic, like, weird Lemmings tunes. So uh, here's an example uh, from Lemmings Sega Master System of How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Um, and let's take <laughs> <Yeah>. a listen. <laughs> That song has some uh, clutch pitch bends in it. Yeah, the 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 secondary pulse, not uh, not the arping pulse, is like so like bent and uh, twisted. And I just love the uh, the combination of like noise and uh, kind of uh, using the square channels to make little toms and stuff. I that was like when I listened to the whole soundtrack, definitely stand out from there. 
So, uh, Commodore 64 legend Drone Tell also wrote many soundtracks for the Master System. Uh, here's an example of his work from Lethal Weapon 3. And uh, oddly enough, this is just like a, a pause jingle. that's a crazy track like if someone asks you to write music for a game you're like hey you just pause the game like would you think of making something like that it's like usually usually pausing the game stops the sound like you don't bust out into like that that sounds like commodore 64 music i know it really does like and like i i was really floored by this like there's a lot of these i hadn't heard before and it's it's just amazing that these guys can bring their talents to this console you know and something that i i don't there's i don't have a lot of words for it that's a really legitimate like track i mean that track would be legitimate today even in like a contest if someone did something like that right uh, you know that that's an amazing piece and his drum work there is ridiculous so i actually was i took a i put it in vgm uh play and muted two of the channels so you can hear kind of the baseline uh i guess some of the echo effects too along with the drums so let's take a listen to that Yeah, wow, there's some great stuff going on in the noise channel there. Like, I love those sort of fade-outs, like, and then, like, it roars back in with, like, this, like, buzzy roll, but it it doesn't sound like an acoustic drum roll. It sounds like an electronic, weird, like, I I don't know, it just has a great sound to it. I mean, there is, like, a lot of thought put into that. I, you know, in terms of, like, using noise channel echo, I can think of, I mean, it's funny, because, like, the track that I used to actually open the show, um the intermission track or whatever has noise channel echo in it. And it's like something I don't see people do very often. I don't think. Um, so I don't, I, that's, this is like the first time that I recall, you know, I, I have been listened actively listening for it, but that I've heard some kind of really cool, like bouncing noise effects like that. It's kind of like a real bouncing echo, like kind of reverberating around the room kind of echo. It's very impressive. Like, re- yeah, like, it sounds great. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, so we also have an example here from a uh, Neil Baldwin, uh, he did some work for the Sega Master System as well. Uh, he did music to the Jungle Book games, and he has like a reggae version of uh, Bare Necessities from the Jungle Book. I think it's really interesting just to hear Baldwin on different uh, consoles here and to hear him on the Sega Master System is kind of cool too. Um, especially, you know, he was kind of mentioning that I guess he had a lot of fun making all the Jungle Book music 
Um, and so, you know, this is just kind of uh, a reggae version of uh, Bare Necessities. You know, so he's, he's definitely having fun with that. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. This is a bit of a tangent, and, like, my ear is not uh, good enough to pick up on this. I couldn't tell if he did it in this version of the track or not, but I know he mentioned on his blog that on the NES version of the soundtrack, at least, that he wanted the arpeggios to sound a lot like guitar strumming, and he even arranged the direction of the arpeggios to match whether it was an upstroke or downstroke on the guitar. Oh, wow. So, like, the way the arpeggio is built, because, you know, you're separating the notes into a chord, if something was, like, you know, A-C-E, A-C-E... Um, depending on the direction it's being strummed, it might go backwards, E-C-A, E-C-A, go down the notes instead if it's like a downstroke versus an upstroke. So it's like a little attention to detail that he put into uh, making his music. It's pretty awesome. No, that's that's very thoughtful, absolutely. So I guess that really wraps up uh, you know, kind of uh, the Sega Master System PSG audio. Yeah, so let's talk about the FM audio. What's up with that? You know, no other country other than Japan had access to the YM2413, the FM sound chip for the Sega Master System. But very interestingly, uh, the door may have been left open for a future FM release at some point. As I mentioned, there's a large peripheral port on the back of the Sega Master System that looks a lot like the peripheral port on the back of the Mark III, in fact, that could have easily been used for the FM attachment or an FM sound unit. Yeah, and there are actually games that were released in the U.S. and Europe that, when connected to a Japanese Mark III with the FM sound unit or the Japanese Sega Master System, they'll play FM tracks. Which literally means that these games were developed for markets that did not have FM sound units with FM soundtracks pre-programmed into them. Yeah, that's really weird. <laughs> that's really strange, right? It's very... I'd like to say it's very Sega because like, but they, you know, so literally if you take a, a U.S. version of Outlook. Wait, so like, re- sorry to interrupt, but how do you know that they existed, right? I don't, I mean, it's very, it's a very recent development. I mean, it, oh, like, okay. here's a great example too. I mean, like I, I, if you take a U.S. version of Outrun and you t- use the, I have a little like extender card. So I put that into my Mark three, hook up my FM sound unit to it. That U.S. version of OutRun loads with the Mark III load screen, which is actually the BIOS is actually on the card, and then starts playing FM music, even though I bought it in the U.S. The tracks are already pre-programmed there. There was an idea. I have to think there was an idea that there was going to be FM audio in the uh, you know the EU and in the U.S. Huh. at some point. Um, so some hidden uh, FM examples are Altered Beast, uh, Scrambled Spirits, uh, which is a great game, by the way. Uh, Ultima 3, Vigilante, Wonder Boy 3, uh, uh, The Dragon's Trap. And of course, one of my favorite uh, FM SMS soundtracks of all time, Outrun 3D. Uh, yeah, I saw you had like, some notes about that. Like, What is it that you like about Outrun 3D? Well, I mean, I'm a huge Outrun fan. Love it in the arcades. Played it at Pizza Hut, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and Outrun 3D uses Sega's 3D glasses, which actually, I don't know if, you've used, if anyone's used them lately. They're actually really good. Um, it, for the time it was released and everything, it's really fun. Uh, and it has a really interesting soundtrack. Um, so, you know, OutRun has Passing Breeze, uh, Splash Wave, uh, you know, Magical Sound Shower. Um, it removes Passing Breeze and Splash Wave from the soundtrack, and they're replaced by new tracks uh, known as Color Ocean, Shining Wind, and Midnight Highway. And these tracks only appear, as far as I know, in OutRun 3D. Now, when OutRun 3D you know, the new version, the 3D Classics version was released. These were not included. They included two new tracks, which are awesome in themselves, but these tracks were not included. So keep in mind that OutRun 3D for the Master System is not the same as the 3D Classics version that huh. was released for the 3DS. I, there's a lot of confusion about that, I think. 
Um, so my favorite of three is a track called Midnight Highway. Um, so let's play an excerpt from that here. on at the same time, it creates that awesome effect here. Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. Like, uh, it's unfortunate that this wasn't a super common thing and that the systems weren't released internationally to support the FM because, uh, you know, if more soundtracks sounded like that, like that, you know, that would have been great. I mean, it sucks too because OutRun 3D was only released in Europe. So that means no one heard that. No one heard that that, that version of the soundtrack oh, wow. until like very recently. Um, and just the layers and just like the time that was spent. I mean, someone sat there and programmed that um, and no one got to hear it until people were kind of messing around lately, um, which is, you know, kind of, uh, you know, here at Richard Game Audio, it's one of those like mysteries, you know, and right. someone found that out. That's kind of awesome. I love, yeah. I love finding that kind of stuff out. Absolutely. That's really, really cool. Oh, so we're talking about the FM audio, but we haven't really explained it. Uh, Steve, can you provide some more info on it? So the YM2413 is also known as the OPLL. Um, you know, they have like those particular titles. And it's kind of a, I'd say, almost a cut-rate version of the YM2312, uh, which is the OPL2. Um, so basically, they, you know, this is like the value brand uh, <laughs> OPL chip. <laughs> hey, I'm not even kidding. Um, so there are certain things that were kind of removed to make it cheaper. Um, so as a result, you can only really make one instrument for it. So you can only at any given time have one instrument you made um, yourself. And there's 15 other instruments that are hard coded. As a result, kind of like every um, every track that you hear uh, that is made on this chip kind of sounds the same because there's 15 stock instruments. Just kind of similar to how you'd have a keyboard with stock sounds. It, right. it, they're kind of all predefined. So also part of the cost-cutting measures was um, there's only two operators, and that means like two kind of layers. I mean, when we talk about the Sega Genesis, we'll get into this in more detail. Um, the Sega Genesis has four operators, so it has more robust sound. Um, the YM2413 um, is essentially, you know, for you NES audio guys, the YM2413 is very similar to Konami's VRC7 sound chip. And that, I mean, if you heard the capabilities I just said, and you're familiar with the VRC7, it's kind of basically the same thing. Um, the subtle differences. So, you know, Lagrange Point has very similar audio to what a Sega Master System game with an FM sound would have. Ah, okay. um, it's also, yeah, I mean, it, it's basically the same sounds. And I'm fairly certain that uh, when you use Family Tracker and make VRC7 sounds, they are almost exactly the same sounds that you'd hear from the FM chip uh, on the uh, Sega Master System. So that's good to know. You can kind of make your own music. There's no real tracker for the FM chip as of right now. Gotcha. Um, 
please, Delic, can you make one for Duffel Mask? I'd be very happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, it, like, it, uh, I guess to put this all, like, in really simple terms, like, you could think, and someone will probably groan at the oversimplification, but, like, you picture in your head, because the Sega Genesis used FM audio, um, you can picture that's, like, the 16-bit generation FM audio. This is the 8-bit FM audio. So it sounds like the Sega Genesis, but crappier, more more sim- more more limited, more simplistic. Yeah, it, it's kind of you know, it, like I said, it's kind of a cut rate version of it. Um, but you know, it gets the job done, and it sounds better than expected. Um, and it has kind of an iconic sound because a lot of the sounds that are pre-programmed, uh, the decisions they made are very fundamentally sounds that we kind of know as Sega sounds. So that's a that's kind of a good thing. Cool. Oh, wait, and so isn't the, like, the MSX, which had, like, an FM uh, expansion audio add-on or something like that, it used the same audio as this, right? Yeah, it actually did. They both used the YM2413. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, that's true. And it's funny because we just brought up the MSX computer when comparing it to the SC3000, Sega's computer offering. Right. So it's funny that both of them kind of use the same chip for the same purposes. Yeah, if you, if you want to hear this chip put to use more, I'll also link in the show notes. There's um, a Final Fantasy port for the MSX that uses the FM audio. So it's like a familiar music uh, set to the sound chip. Yeah, absolutely. And that about wraps up the main portion of this episode. So it is time for questions, comments, and general feedback. Um, We're going back a couple episodes now since we skipped a week. This is in response to the NES episode. Um, Hun Retro Geek had a bunch of, like, uh, technical responses that were fantastic. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I, I want to read uh, one here about the 7-bit uh, signal here in the DPCM channel. So it says, The 7-bit signal can either be driven by the automatic DPCM unit, which takes a negligible amount of CPU power, or the CPU can manually stream data to the output register. Yeah, I think in the episode I managed something about streaming the 7-bit audio. Mm-hmm. And it says the FamaTracker ZXX effect that we're talking about, the one that gives the pop noises, uh, actually does the same but only streams a single value before starting a DPCM sample. Interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So I the didn't P- know that either. Right. Yeah. So the PCM playback requires a constant data stream, and there's no good way to output that uh, stream while still having enough CPU time left to do more than uh, changing the palette or you know waiting for the player to press a button. Um, yeah, so that's why you don't really see like intensive gameplay stuff happening with the 7-bit audio happening at the same time. So... Um, that, that's my interjection into his comment there. So and he says, theoretically, you could get 11 kilohertz PCM audio for about 50% uh, CPU power with the more advanced mapper. Huh, so I, that's, crazy. that's interesting. I mean, it's, it, it's like funny because we were talking about Big Bird's Hide and Speak. And if uh, if you've played the game, and I, I definitely did because my little brother had it, like, you know, Big Bird would say something to you and you didn't do anything until after Big Bird said something. So it was kind of like you had to wait for the computer to kind of, or the, the chip itself to actually kind of say the, the, the audio, and then you could start moving. Oh, so yeah, so we have another comment here. Um, so in the NES episode, I mentioned something about the like frame rate of the NES, like kind of being like 60 frames per second, and like that's the resolution that at which you can like manipulate the audio and stuff like that. Uh, but we have a comment adding further clarification from XYZ. Uh, Steve, can you read his comment? So XYZ says, not exactly true. 
The 60 Hz thing is called the engine refresh rate, which is simply the rate at which the music engine will update the sound. It's convenient to time your music engine to follow the same clock as the interrupts received from the V-blank coming from the PPU, but this is a software choice. It is not a limitation of the hardware. I think that's the most interesting part. Um, you can make a sound engine that updates at 70 hertz, but it is indeed hard to make game with it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there are some tools out there and stuff that, like, up the um, frame rate. I, I, I can't not call it frame rate, but, you know, the engine refresh rate um, and get crazier sounds of the NES. And we'll talk about that more in a future episode. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so uh, yeah, uh, I also got a couple comments, one from JRed, another from Kirby. Um, people were mentioning that, that they actually listened to all of the Gordian Tomb soundtrack and they enjoyed it. So I'm very stoked uh, about that because I, you know, it, I think it's a weird kind of obscure soundtrack, uh, but it's very cool. So I'm happy to uh, spread the love on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And like, you know, as we've kind of talked about many times, through composed work is really rare. And to see basically a soundtrack that goes along with an entire game is really forward thinking. Um, yeah, So I absolutely. really love that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's something I might expect to find in a more modern soundtrack, perhaps, but, um, you know, not in an older game soundtrack. So No, absolutely, yeah. Oh, and uh, so also for the Gordian Tomb episode, I when I tweeted out the episode mentioning that it's like the longest piece or longest known piece of classic video game music, um, Patty from the Twin Humanities podcast mentioned to me, uh, he said, one of his favorite things about the C64 Tetris is its magnificent 20-odd minute musical piece. Feels so dreamlike. And so I had no idea that existed. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and I was looking it up. The music in it is really weird. Uh, like some of the art in the game is really weird. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm actually having that play right now behind our voices because um, it was cool. I didn't know that existed. Uh, that's definitely got to be a runner-up for one of the longest pieces of game music. Um, yeah, I guess we'll put that out there for the listeners. Like, if anyone can think of game music before like the mid '90s, uh, that's over 20 minutes in length. Uh, you know, I'd be curious if if uh, other examples exist at all. Yeah, I mean, like, so basically, I guess, before the dawn of Red Book Audio, uh, what yeah. I guess would be kind of like the cutoff, like, so Super Nintendo, uh, Genesis, uh, yeah. 16-bit consoles. Because, I mean, it really is fascinating, like, and to have a composer who can actually write interesting music that for that length. I mean, you know, think about it, like, uh, iconic pieces that are very long, that are kind of pieced together, like Dancing Mad, Final Fantasy VI mm-hmm. is like probably up there too, although some people consider it to be four different songs or something like that. Um, that's another like what, twelve minutes, thirteen minutes, kind right. of an epic kind of thing. Um, but like, there's very few of those, like you know. And so, if you guys know any of them, yeah. uh, please keep tweeting I, us. I do know it's funny that you mentioned Red Book Audio because I don't know what you would classify this as, but there was a, an Amiga game I had on CD called mm-hmm. uh, The Labyrinth of Time. And it was like this puzzle game. I guess you could compare it to Myst, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this like puzzle adventure game, and uh, you know, like 3D sort of thing. And yeah. it had backing audio. And one of the tracks is, or I guess, like the only main background track, aside from the intro, I think, is like over 20 something minutes as well. Mm-hmm. But I found out after the fact that it was just stock audio. Uh, it wasn't composed for the game, which is a bummer because it's actually really good. And this is a weird tangent to go on, but I swear I heard a segment of that music in an episode of Pete and Pete. <laughs> and it's like, I could be wrong. I, I could have been mishearing things, but the fact that it was stock audio lends like a possibility to that. Like you're, you're talking about like an early 90s computer game yeah, and a 90s TV show 
-hmm. and TV shows tend to use, you know, like whatever, you know, little bits of incidental audio, like they don't have to pay for it. Uh, you know, I'm assuming that's the same reason the game used it, is they found some music they didn't have to pay for, or was dirt cheap to license or something. Um, so, yeah, that's weird. So that's a very weird tangent to go on, but I'm gonna, I, like, I don't know, uh, I don't have Pete and Pete, I don't own it, but, like, I'm tempted to, like, rewatch the series and see if I can find that, like, And weird... match it up? Yeah, yeah match it up. Uh, so if we're on tangents about this particular topic, <laughs> one of my favorite games of all time for Macintosh, or for Macintosh computers, is Escape Velocity. Okay. Hopefully someone out there remembers this game because it's like the most amazing. Like anyone who had a Mac probably loved this game. Um, it was on like every demo disc or whatever. And the title theme to Escape Velocity was this like really epic like brass thing, but it also was like one of those kind of like uh, anyone can kind of use it kind of tracks or whatever. And I remember like watching. I guess it was like the Channel Four News like. And they had like some kind of sports wind up where they're showing like a bunch of sports highlights, and it was playing the theme to Escape Velocity in the background, and that always disappointed me because I thought it was written for Escape Velocity, but it turned out it was like public music or something. Ah, uh, like so, so we, I, we both been burned on like enjoying these game soundtracks to find out it was like public domain kind of stuff afterwards. I know, yeah. I know, it's a great track, and if anyone knows Escape Velocity, I can, I can, I can talk a lot about that game. So please, please hit me up. We'll talk about, we'll talk some Escape Velocity. It's really funny. Yeah, and if if any if any listen played uh labyrinth of time as well i feel like i'm alone on that i have like those weird pockets of nostalgia where like there's not many people i can talk to about it because it's like some kind of mediocre amiga game but uh yeah <laughs> yeah this was this was macintosh uh shareware so <laughs> oh shit <laughs> yeah that's fantastic yeah that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let's move on to name that game uh we had a week off since we did that sort of uh off episode about gordian tomb and then we had another week where users didn't uh, guess it. So uh, this is we're going back several weeks now. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, that's uh, we have a winner for that, which is great. Uh, Hun Retro Geek identif- correctly identified that that was King of Kings. King of Kings uh, uses the Namco 163 uh, sound chip for the uh, Famicom uh, for Nintendo Famicom, and it's the one of the only one of two games. I'm sorry mm-hmm. that uses all eight extra channels. So it kind of has a special place in my heart as being like you know someone was able to turn the, the volume knob up to 11 out of 10 and and use all the channels because a lot of the other games use four or six. Um, so to see all eight channels is kind of cool. So that's great. I'm glad someone got it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the other one that uses the sound cha- uh, all the sound channels simultaneously is that like Erica to Sataro game, right? Something with uh, Erica in the title, I think. I don't know. I'd have to give another listen. But, Erica, uh, Erica Satoru, Erica, yeah, I mean, Erica Wa Satoru, something like that. Sure. Uh, close enough. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the name anyways. So, All right, so now let's give a listen to this week's mystery game.
right, everyone, best of luck with that. And so that about wraps things up for this episode. Steve, you had a song of the week picked out? Yep. Um, so, you know, I love OutRun 3D and, uh, you know, kind of if, if you guys have played any of the other OutRun games, when you win, you, you enter your name and it plays that nice like kind of like song that has like the, uh, you know, you can hear the ocean kind of with the noise channel or whatever. That's known as Passing Breeze. And OutRun 3D's version of Passing Breeze is one of my favorites. Uh, it has like a really nice kind of sound to it, kind of simple. So uh, I'd love to end on that. So uh, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. You've been listening to Retro Game Audio.